It has been said that he not busy being born is busy dying. And as darkness creeps into the daylight and each night grows colder, we're keeping ourselves busy this winter with the business of death. First, we take a trip to the Bronx to celebrate life and find ourselves confronting its cruel asymmetry. Then, we spend an afternoon in the reflection of an octogenarian woman as she writes and rewrites her final moments. And finally, we find our way back to downtown Brooklyn and into a macabre collection of contraband specimens. Though in the end, we know that dark is right. We'll always rage against the dying of the light in Brooklyn, USA. Here's Brian. It takes about a decade of work for a corpse flower to bloom in cultivation. The bloom itself lasts about 24 hours. On June 26th, about an hour before closing time, the New York Botanical Garden's closely watched corpse flower started to change shape. We took the four train from Brooklyn to the northeast corner of Belmont in the Bronx to catch the inflorescence at its peak. Can you smell it now? You can smell it now. Um, we actually came from Maine. We're down here visiting colleges, and we just happened to visit this on the day that it was doing its thing. We were in the city anyway, but we are visiting from Iowa. We're over by Kings Plaza, that side. Minnesota, and I'm from the Outer Banks, North Carolina. We're from Buffalo, and the one there already bloomed, and we totally missed it, so. Yeah, no. <laughs> we're from the Bronx. Ooh, yeah, we're down here. <laughs> so the plant will continue storing energy for about seven to 10 years. And when the plant decides, it will produce a flower. There's no way to trigger it, it when it wants to. My name is Mark Hatchadorian, and my title is the director of the Nolan Greenhouses at the New York Botanical Garden. Mark has been caring for this specific plant for seven years. Once the flower is open, it lasts only two to three days. The flower, in order to attract the pollinator, does a couple of different things. Not only does it smell like rotting flesh, it looks like rotting flesh, and there's also a chemical... This plant, when it was first found in Western Java was really, you know, just a bit of a botanical sensation. Get in there and smell it. Get a big whiff. I think the celebration of the grotesque behind it and that real horror movie aspect, that haunted house aspect, where they want to come, they want to see it, but more importantly, they want to smell it. They want to see what the smell of, you know, these, the, the smell of death, you know. The name suits it, basically. It really does smell like a dead corpse. The flies, the flies, they love it. It smells a little bit like garbage. Rotting meat. And I heard someone say it's getting worse. <laughs> Ooh. In the New World, the New York Botanical Garden was the first botanical garden to flower the plant, and it was named the floral emblem of the Bronx. Hey. Have you been down to the botanical garden lately? Yeah, down the street. Have you been over there to check out this flower? Oh, stop here. Stop here. Uh, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen it, but uh, I saw it on TV. It looked kind of cool. It was. Cool. That's all. That's all I can say about it. it. I never even knew this such smell. a thing. Never knew such a thing existed. Okay. <laughs> what? So you just came from the botanical garden, and they have a thing there called the corpse flower. 
So I wonder if you heard about the corpse flower over at the garden. No, this is the first time I'm, I'm being um, made aware of it. Normally I get up and I go to work. I'll be to work, but today I'm off early. But what is this corpse for, flower all about? Uh, we're doing a radio story about the corpse flower at the botanical garden. The what? The what? It's the most famous thing to hit the Bronx. Listen, a young boy just died who was murdered. Like, I think my mind is on that more than something that's not saying it's not essential, but there was a huge, I mean, everybody was at that funeral today. A week prior, on June 20th, 15-year-old Lissandra Guzman Feliz, or Junior, was murdered outside a bodega in Belmont. On the day the corpse flower reached peak bloom, hundreds of people gathered outside Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church to witness Junior's funeral procession and rally for justice. A bus ride away, people from all over the state and country were paying the standard $23 admission fee and filing into the climate-controlled Enid A. Hopped Conservatory. Plants are everywhere, but how often do you get something that blooms every 10 years and then it dies? It's carnivorous and parasitic. This isn't my thing. I'm a political type guy. This is, the, you know, the earthy, I'm the, that's not me. I like this shape. It's a, like a sculptor. I'm starting chemo tomorrow, so I feel so lucky that I got to see this today. So it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to be doing, and I'm so positive about everything. It's just the fascination of it's something that doesn't happen every year. It's every seven to ten years, so it's, it's amazing. You really aren't impressed. This isn't my thing. Well, I see your camera phone out. This is my wife. <laughs> The museum is a massive educational resource, but it's also an oasis. 250 acres of undeveloped land in the middle of the Bronx. At its center, it's almost quiet. Entering the conservatory is like stepping out of New York and into a different temperate zone. The museum is carefully tailored to support plant life from all over the world. And in many ways, that's the point of a museum to show people things they might never see otherwise. But what happens when people are excluded? And so when I see people going to botanical gardens, I don't see people who are members of the community. I see a lot of people who are outside and gentrifying the community. There's white people coming from the Metro North. Let's keep it real, keeping it facts. So what, what's the I mean, they have a day that's free on Wednesday, but there's a barrier because people don't see themselves celebrating what flowers. What, what's the barrier to entry Because in the they don't make it as welcoming, warm and welcoming. They have the food, um, they, they have the full farmer's market, but even with that, that's still like you're kind of intruding on them in a sense, right? Because it's like they automatically know, okay, EBT cards are taken, like, oh gosh. And people can't think about flowers when they're trying to eat, when they're trying to pay rent that is exorbitantly high, when they're living five and six to a one-bedroom apartment. So why am I going to go to see a flower? Always, always the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx. I'm from Brooklyn, born and raised, but I have family and friends that I visit in the Bronx, and it's, it's pretty much always been that way.
So my name is Stephanie Johnson Cunningham. I'm the co-founder and creative director of an organization called Museum Hue. Museum Hue is an organization that advocates for people of color in the arts. Like other cultural institutions, it's a white space. And for a lot of people, it can seem like it wasn't necessarily a space for them. It wasn't inviting to them. And if it was, it felt sometimes pandering. You know, the institution is just like inviting them into the space and not really forming a relationship. This summer, Stephanie Johnson Cunningham wrote an article for Museums and Social Issues, outlining five steps museums should take to center communities and cultivate social change. To decolonize the space, especially like a museum, I think one thing cultural institutions have to do is be honest with their history. Recently, National Geographic came out with a publication around race and was very honest about the history of their institution, how it was created, how it was very racist and sexist. And so they have to become more forward-facing with their activism. Our action today is in solidarity with the Lenape. In the past few years, actions have been springing up all over the city, calling for museums and cultural institutions to stop thinking of themselves as apolitical. In April, over 60 protesters from 20 community groups rallied at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden and Brooklyn Museum to demand a deep diversification of staff, a commitment to mitigate gentrification, and an acknowledgement of the full history of the land both institutions were built on. We stand with our comrades to advance indigenous resurgence. To advance indigenous resurgence. And fight for decolonization. And fight for decolonization. This is where we must begin. And while the New York Botanical Garden has never been protested on that scale, like the Brooklyn Museum and Brooklyn Botanic Garden, it sits on stolen Lenape land. In the 16 and 1700s, that land was divvied up and sold off to English and Dutch farmers and worked by enslaved people. The garden itself was built by Irish immigrants in the 1880s and opened to the public in 1896. The New York Botanical Garden doesn't currently acknowledge most of that history in their front-facing materials. I think cultural institutions have to become very honest with the framework of what their cultural institution is built upon. Another important step to welcoming in Bronx residents? I think what they also have to do is to become more relevant to what's happening um, around them. You know, the gentrification, food deserts, the lack of green space. When the Bronx, you know, has a lot of food deserts, the Brooklyn Botanical Garden and the New York Botanical Garden are green spaces that should also talk about, you know, the issue of, of the lack of green spaces. I'm telling you, in the morning time, you come here, just watch us. You come in, I'll show you around. So this is the hot sauce, the Bronx hot sauce. So we just picked this morning all the serrano peppers for the Bronx hot sauce. So there are like around 12 community gardens that are growing serrano peppers. And so, yeah, so we just picked them this morning. Well, I grew up in New York and had no ambition or even thought about gardening or food. My relationship to food was the fact that my mom was a good cook and we had three meals. 
So when I grew my first tomato on a vine, saw it was red and bit into it, it changed my world. Karen Washington is a community gardener and activist. And I tell people I grow food, I feed people body and mind, and I've been growing food in New York City for over 30 years. She's been working with the NYBG almost as long as she's been living in the Bronx. Today, she's a board member. So when I first moved to the Bronx, from all information that I knew about the Botanical Garden, it catered to mostly affluent people. I didn't hear from neighbors or heard on the street that people were going to the, to the New York Botanical Gardens, and it seemed more elitist. But that sort of changed in 1985. So yesterday was our farmer's market. So we bring the residue of what we got to the farmer's market to feed the chickens. So the one is out. So I looked out my window and there was a man with a shovel and a pick. And he said, well, I want to start a community garden. And then the next day, this green truck pulls up and it says Bronx Green Up. Bronx Green Up is the community gardening outreach arm of the NYBG. It was born out of volunteer neighborhood efforts in the 1970s and 80s to beautify empty lots. The city was going through, you know, financial crisis. They really didn't have enough money to do a lot of uh, development, especially in low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. So it was the community got together and turned these empty lots into community gardens. And one thing that the New York Botanical Garden provided was a lot of resources. So the trees and the shrubs that you see in many of the Bronx gardens came from the botanical gardens, the native plants. But, uh, and so this is like, this is Popolo. If you, it's just like... Uh, so the Garden of Happiness um, was, once a, was once an empty lot. It's three quarters of an acre. It's close walking distance to the Bronx Zoo and the New Botanical Garden. It originally started with African-American and Puerto Ricans, and as they retired and moved on, the next wave were Dominicans. And now for the last, I would say, 15, 20 years, it's Mexican. Now I know about Papalo, Popiche, Epizote, Tomatillas, um, and so they get a chance to know a lot about collards and kale and callaloo. Karen Washington gives Bronx Green up a lot of credit. But she knows that the garden has a long way to go if they're serious about reaching out to the Bronx community. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect really to well, not only the food, but it just plants and flowers in general. Um, and so that's why these community gardens are so important. Because if you don't have access or time to go to the New York Botanical Garden or the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, you have these small, tiny oases right in your backyard that you can go out and visit. And just to make people know that community gardens are open to the public, they are free to be able to speak out and speak up for these spaces, to maintain these spaces, continues to be an act of activism. You understand? I mean, I'm just being real with everything that's happening. People are not really thinking about flowers here. I'm sorry. So that's all I have to say. So you, I'm sorry, you're taking me way down the path, and I understand if you have to go or whatever. Mm -hmm. So this flower is like an ambassador mm -hmm. for the Bronx to the world. Mm -hmm. But what would you have someone who came from as far as Australia to see this flower know about the community that surrounds it? My thing is they won't really care. They'll think hip-hop 
Botanical Gardens in the Bronx Zoo. They won't really care. They're not going to do the research. You understand? I'm just being real. Yeah. Okay. Share your name with me. Uh, Brian. Bar. Let's put it that way. Okay. Bar. Mm-hmm. Nice talking to you guys. Thank you. Well, believe it or not, um, a lot of people think of the Bronx still burning. I just want people to make sure that they understand that the Bronx is thriving, is a vibrant community. People think because I'm a food activist that I'm from Brooklyn, but I have to remind them, no, I'm from the Boogie Down Bronx and I'm proud of it. Shotzi Weisberger believes that death should factor into a person's life long before it arrives. The 88-year-old Brooklynite, who holds weekly death cafes where people come together to talk openly and honestly about dying, recently took us on a journey to the great beyond. Here's Shotzi. The nature of civilization everywhere was such that, even with the Greeks, it diverted people's minds away from the reality of death. That's why people are so afraid these days. It's the unknown. Life is not about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. <laughs> People have always been afraid of death, of the unknown. Uh, they're afraid of the unknown suffering. They're afraid of the unknown. Uh, they're afraid of pain, the unknown. Hidden depths. Sometimes it, it, it feels very bizarre. I'm 88 years old. How could that be? How did that happen? Other times I feel like, oh my God, I'm so old. I'm tired. I, I, um, I have very strong feelings of how I would like to die. I wish I could control it. I know I can, but what I would like is to die here in my bed, to be in my bed and to know I'm dying, not to die of a heart attack or, you know, to suddenly, I want to be able, I want to, I'm so curious about it, I want to experience the dying process, and I want to have time for my friends to come and say goodbye. I am the spirit of dark and lonely water. And this is the kind of place you'd expect to find me. 
for the past hundred years here in the United States, people die in hospitals, so people don't even have any familiarity, aren't around people who are dying. It used to be you died at home, and that was before they had chemo and radiation and all these medications, and, and people died. And, you know, it was a, a natural process. This is my gown that I just bought yesterday and I want to be buried in. It's all cotton. Yeah. I hope. You know, I, I didn't. It just felt like it was all cotton. If it's not, I'm going to have to get a different one. I can't tell, but I think it's all cotton. Yeah. It's pretty. It's very pretty. Can you pull it off like this? Sure. And I also I have a bequeath list. Uh, if you notice, uh, all the things have little tags on them with people's names. So people have selected what they like of my stuff because I, I'm very attached to my stuff. Cecily B. Large Chippendale metal toll tray. Howard. Bronze Victorian flower lamp. Jackie D. Vintage French provincial style mirror with gold trims.
I am the spirit of dark and lonely water. Ready to trap the unwary, the show-off, the fool. And this is the kind of place you'd expect to find me. Brooklyn is home to many strange collections, a puppet library hidden in Flatbush, a front yard full of pop culture statues in Bensonhurst, a collection of sideshow memorabilia housed at home in Coney Island. But few are as strange or controversial as the one we found behind the red velvet curtains at the House of Wax. Here's Ryan. These are some of our uh, fetal abnormalities. They show different ways that um, babies were born. They're, I like these little pieces here show fetal developmental stages. Sorry, ice is being poured. It's a bar after all. The City Point development in downtown Brooklyn is part residential complex, part mall. Just beyond the Alamo Drafthouse ticket booth, four flights up, you'll find the entrance to House of Wax an unusual bar operated by Ryan Matthew Cohen. I am a curator and my more appropriate title is professional weirdo. See, this is, this is something that you don't see at every bar. We have like early circumcision tools being performed on wax babies. That's an original. Well, I've always been a collector and I think that this bar came out of collecting, obviously. Um, and then if you walk around the bend, I literally live in a museum. Everything covers every inch of my apartment because that's how I wanted to live. Do other people want to be around that? I think so, actually, a lot more than I thought. Um, this was from actually a separate collection. There's, a, I think, one, maybe six of them. But he has real human teeth and real glass eyes. Is the hair real as well? Yeah, yeah, it's all human hair. To me, it's, I'm desensitized to it. It doesn't feel weird that I'm sitting on a stage at House of Wax um, surrounded by syphilitic genitalia and women giving birth. It's a very commercial building. There's a Target underneath me. There's a Century 21 and a Trader Joe's. There's nothing really all that edgy about those spaces. We didn't know if anyone would like it. We thought, you know, are people gonna be absolutely horrified by the collection? And so far we've had, you know, I'd say like 98% positive feedback. And we have, you know, school groups that come through and people in the medical field that come here and actually study the figures now. My wife and I would think we were just watching a movie and I got a call. My name's Joanna Ebenstein and I'm the founder of Morbid Anatomy. Joanna Ebenstein is the author of The Anatomical Venus and co-founder of Morbid Anatomy a blog-turned-brick-and-mortar museum in 2014. We're catching up, essentially, and towards the end of it, she goes, oh, by the way... Oh, yeah, there's somebody who was getting rid of this collection from Kasten's Panopticon, and it was about 150 pieces. It was in Germany. And I flipped out. And he became obsessed with it. I mean, it was, like, one of the best 
by far the best wax collection I'd ever seen outside of museum hands. It was just going to be sold off piecemeal. So everyone agreed, like, we have to find one buyer because it's so special to see this all together. I ended up teaming up with Tim League, who's the CEO of Alamo Drafthouse. What they try to do with many of their facilities is come up with an interesting theme for their bars. And so this ended up being the theme. While it was waiting to go to its permanent home of Alamo Drafthouse, I ended up putting it on exhibit at Morbid Anatomy. So Morbid Anatomy started as a blog in 2007, and then it very quickly developed a cult audience of people. The Morbid Anatomy Museum was forced to shutter in 2016 for financial reasons. Today, it's operated out of a temporary space at Greenwood Cemetery, but is often considered a museum without walls. So we produce lectures and field trips and exhibitions that surround these ideas of death, the body, and different ways that we've had to describe it and understand it over time. You don't see these collections together anymore. You see isolated pieces here and there, but because no one took them very seriously in the time, most of them just got dispersed or melted down or lost. It's very important to show these things that can be confronting. But what I think is very important is text that contextualizes it, which is why I hired this academic to write the text. I didn't feel qualified. Peter McIsaac, I am an associate professor of German and museum studies at the University of Michigan. When Joanna Ebenstein reached out, Peter McIsaac agreed to piece together a short history of the collection. This is actually a very important collection, historically speaking. Castans was founded in 1869, and it moved a couple of times within Berlin. The collection originally came from what's known as a panopticon. In German, this is understood to mean a show of everything. It encompassed a lot of different things, natural history. Cultural icons, great writers. They like serial killers for some reason. Scientific elements, medical elements. It brought them all together. And then there was, you know, live performances. It was really like this sensationalized museum experience. And they were for profit. So they were interested in drawing a broad audience, as big an audience as possible. Boy prostitutes in Weimar, Germany, they would take their Johns to Kasten's Panopticon. Education and entertainment and titillation and real learning all went hand in hand. It's the internal anatomy, so just showing the organs. It's just so beautifully represented. I mean, there's a lot of artistry that went into a number of these pieces. Obviously, like I said earlier, some of the pieces are a little crude in their representation. What you mostly see in House of Wax is medical specimens. And of course, we have like syphilis of different aspects of babies. That was there was a big cadaver shortage for medical students and medical professionals. Uh, so when you didn't have an actual human body, you can make a wax version of it. The medical abnormalities, those were cast from real individuals. A mold was made, wax was poured. There was an entire career devoted to making them, and the people who supplied medical collections often supplied panopticons. So some of these objects are actually pretty serious. In the castans, you might have seen a number of the objects are signed by this guy, E.E. E. Hummer who was a really, really famous anatomist during the 19th century. And I think we have five or six. You know, and it's sort of jarring on one level that there are a couple that depict various kinds of childbirth, you know, and he has the signature across the, the woman's leg. There was something of a medical ethics in Germany already by the end of the 19th century, but there was nothing like patient consent that we know of. These museums were interested in science, you know, and this was the new science of anthropology along with the science of medicine. Like, what's this one? Is a Papua New Guinea tribes person. Occasionally, these things are actually cast from real individuals and real tribes people. And some of them were probably on full bust. It wasn't just the bust, it was like a full figure 
uh, we just have the bust. But it's funny, in my storage, I still have maybe like 10 different stray bodies. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, they didn't go to the ones that we had here. We didn't really have the space either, so. The way that I look at this stuff is, it was like National Geographic before National Geographic. There was no National Geographic in the 19th century. Part of the sort of attraction side of the Panopticum also included live performances of various kinds. They would bring people from non-European regions and they would allow people to pay admission to come and, and look at them. Human zoos were at a lot of um, world's fairs. They were here in New York City at Coney Island. We had Igorot tribesmen on display. They were very, very underpaid. They were often exposed to a variety of diseases. A number of them died while they were performing. They would perform for a general public, but then they would also perform for professional anthropologists. So they would take body casts from the performers. The, the busts in the Castan's collection, those actually were made in a context, supposedly, of anthropological study. You know, back in the day, they were really using these as medical models. And the way that they sculpt and illustrate Black people is so far removed from reality that... I don't even understand how they could think that that should be representative of a human being. My name is Doreen Garner, and I'm a fine artist. Doreen Garner is a Brooklyn-based artist who has exhibited work at Recess and Pioneer Works. A lot of the work that I make is mostly around the exploitation of Black bodies by the medical industry. I made several works. One that is called Rack of Those Ravaged and Unconsenting, and... It's basically like a large steel rack that resembles a meat rack, and the carcasses that are hanging from the rack are actually cast from black women's bodies. I've worked in like beeswax before, but not a lot. I've started using Body Double Silk, which is a smooth-on product. It's a silicone that's body safe and has like a self-release agent. So you kind of mix it up, and it looks like green Nickelodeon slime, and you just like put it onto the body and then let it set up. There is like this element of like vulnerability and trust that they're placing in me to take care of their body, replicate their body well, um, but also making sure that it's not being exploited in any way. And that was like a really important part of the piece to make sure that people were not able to exploit the body parts and like touch them and fondle them. I ended up putting like steel pins in the skin so that people wouldn't be tempted to touch. Yeah, so each of the sculptures had its own defense mechanism. I bring people there so they can be like, what the fuck? I've seen those figures also at the Morbid Anatomy Museum. And when I first saw them there, I think I was more disturbed because that was the first time I'd seen them. One of my colleagues at the museum was very uh, worried about showing the ethnographic pieces and basically saying, we can't show these. And my feeling and what I said is we have to show these. But, you know, it's interesting, like every other exhibition we had at Morbid Anatomy was covered by the New York Times. And that was the one that wasn't. And I think people didn't know what to do with that material. And I think it's interesting because we also had more people of color come to that exhibit than any other exhibit. At that bar specifically, I have like, a really weird experience every time I go in there. One, because, you know, I'm drinking or whatever, but two, because most of the time the main demographic of the people in the bar is white, and so it makes me feel really, really uncomfortable um, that 
there are like depictions like this that are supposed to be representative of people that look like me. Before it was rezoned in 2004, downtown Brooklyn was largely populated by small Black-owned businesses. Three years after the rezoning, the Albee Square Mall was raised to make room for City Point and a string of other high-rises. Yeah, I think it's a tricky, it's a tricky space. Um, I wish, personally, there was more text contextualizing it. We worked very hard at the museum to make sure there was a lot of text that was very important. And I feel, especially in that neighborhood, I would want very obvious text, very close to where those waxes are that explain what this is and that it's explaining what the worldview that produced them was. You know, I think that's seeing them as art objects. I I get why they made that choice. And I think it's very striking. It's a very striking display, but, um, you know, I think like the fetal specimens have made people a little queasy at times, but really that's, that's it. You know, most people, even if they don't necessarily love the subject matter, they think it's very interesting. And I think the context that we've used here, like it makes sense. I just think that this was a more interesting way of presenting this than say, I hate to say stuffy museum, but some museums tend to be a little stuffy or they can be stuffy. And so I think we wanted to try to create uh, a more interactive experience. Makes me feel good that we were able to keep it together and that we've created almost a museum it is a museum. I don't know that there are that many displays of them today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the bar in, in Brooklyn is one of the few places you can actually see these things on a regular basis. You know, it's kind of funny. We don't even really have a, there's no prominent medical museums in New York. There's one in Philadelphia, obviously, the Mutter Museum, as many people might know. Uh, we don't have one in New York. So yeah, you don't really see this stuff anywhere else. What I think you're, what I think I hear you asking is why should we show these things? Is that what you're saying? Or I guess what's what's different about encountering them now than right? Okay, I see what you're saying. I think now what they tell us is something about the past. To me, they they are a relic of an antiquated worldview that we're told to pretend didn't exist. And I guess maybe there's something perverse in me that just on the very principle that we're told to pretend it doesn't exist says, I think it's wrong to pretend something doesn't exist. I think there's something childish in looking away and saying, you know, no, no, no. I think it's important to look at things. I can't, I don't feel I can say what people should take away from it. I think it's very complex. But I think if you have this collection that comes and then you can say, well, that part we now think of as offensive, let's not put it in, then history starts to change and the way we understand the past starts to change. And I think that does a lot of damage. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Bogosian. Thank you to Brian Vines for going out onto the street and into the weeds. Thank you to Mayumi Sato for staying glued to the flower cam and giving us the signal that things were finally in bloom. Thanks to Shireen Bargi and Mira Al-Rahim for putting a two-way interview in a blender and hitting liquefy. Thanks to Emily Bogosian and Dolma Ombodico for asking questions and dissecting difficult medical histories. Thanks to Richard Bryan for being a part of the process. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library and the song Corpse Flower by the band Horror Story from the 2006 album Bride of the Monster. 
Thank you to Demon Nation Records for letting us use the track. If you like what you hear, please rate and review. And if you think we got something wrong or just want to get in touch, leave us a comment, tweet us at Brick Radio, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. you to tell me if I say corpse flower to you what kind of picture do you get corpse dead a dead flower yes well I don't think people are waiting in line to see some dead flowers well I mean I don't really know what it is all about but when I hear corpse it could be a flower that might, might seems dead but have more life than it that appear than it appears